welcome to I Don't Know the Podcast, episode 44, Alistair Crowley Revisited. Back in episode 20, we learned all about Alistair Crowley. We learned about how bad his poetry is. We learned about why you shouldn't go mountain climbing with him. And we learned why you should keep your animals away from him. But during my research, I found there was much more to Alistair than just being a syphilitic, heroin-abusing, bestiality enthusiast. And a lot of listeners have told me they want to know more about Mr. Crowley. Was he the wickedest man in the world? What is his legacy? And who has he influenced along the way? I don't know. So listen this week to find out all the stuff I missed or couldn't be bothered to put into episode 20. In episode 20, we looked at the life and debauch times of Alistair Crowley. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I strongly advise that you do. The wickedest man in the world, the Beast 666, that shitty mountaineering poet, those are all names that have been attributed to Crowley. Alistair lived an enormous life, whether it was torturing his lovers into miserable suicides leaving mountain climbing buddies to die in blizzards, or forcing followers to have sex with goats in Italy, Alistair knew what he wanted and he usually got it. As you can imagine, a man whose life was so bold and hedonistic isn't going to let a small thing like death stop him. His legacy is huge. From songs being written about him, to continued creepy feelings around his old haunts. And it is that legacy that we'll be looking at today. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of all. To recap, Alistair Crowley was born into a wealthy brewing family in 1875. He was sent to boarding school where he spent much of his time smoking, masturbating and having sex with prostitutes. 
which set him up perfectly to enter Cambridge University. He ditched university and joined the Golden Dawn, a secret society devoted to the occult. Alistair, however, considered the Golden Dawn's magic to be for pussies, and he formed his own society that would later become the OTO, or Ordo Templis Orientis. He travelled the world, marrying wives, taking in lovers, and indulged in drug fueled perverted rituals that left his followers traumatised and suicidal. Alistair died on December 1st, 1947, from chronic bronchitis. He also had the condition of being a heroin addict with advanced syphilis, which may have contributed to his demise. But he has left a legacy. In 2002, he was voted 73rd in a list of greatest Britons. The veracity of this list for me is questionable, since at number 75 is Bob Geldof, who is not actually British. And at number 77 is Robbie Williams, who, despite being British, is not by any means great. Stories still circulate about Alistair and his effect on certain locations, and one of those locations is Burleskin House in Scotland, which Crowley bought in 1899. The story is that Crowley was looking for a magical house to perform the sacred magic of Abramelin the Mage. His requirements were that it was secluded, have a north opening door from an oratory room, and a terrace that could be covered with fine sand, thus creating a lodge where spirits may congregate. Sounds like a real challenge for an estate agent. Crowley chose his house especially, paying twice the asking price, but Crowley's diary admits he bought it as it was already the centre of a thousand legends, and that even before he arrived, there was a fine crop of the regular hand superstitions. One of them seemed to be the fact the house was haunted by the rolling head of Simon Fraser. Simon Fraser was a previous owner who happened to be the last man in the UK to be executed by beheading, and now his head rolls around the house. Many myths have developed around the house from the time of Crowley's ownership, which I honestly, I cannot confirm. For completeness, they include an incident of a local butcher, not dispelling what he summoned, his lodgekeeper going on a wild drinking spree and trying to kill his wife and kids. Remember, this is Scotland, so that might not be that unusual. Boleskine was eventually sold on Friday the 12th of July 1918 to Dorothy C. Brooke for £2,500. It then passed to retired Army Major Edward Eric Grant. On Tuesday the 8th of November 1960, he blew his head off with a shotgun in Crowley's bedroom. Bloody hell! In a book written by Molly's son, the passageway between the house and the graveyard was confirmed to exist as he used to play in it. He also mentions that over time, his mother changed and turned from someone who wanted to do up the house to someone dependent on alcohol. Again, they seem to think that drinking to excess might be something unusual. It's Scotland. The sky is permanently grey, all the food is deep fried. I mean, whiskey must be a godsend there. Well, the house was sold again to a lady called Molly, who was going to turn the grounds into a pig farm. The venture failed with losses of £3 million. 
but from what I can see no charges were brought. When the scandal hit, the pigs in the farm were supposedly left to die. Three million pounds? That's a lot of pigs. In 1971, Boleskine House was bought by Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page, who asked his childhood friend Malcolm Dent to look after it and supervise the restoration of the building. Dent is reported to have said, any time there was something major being done to the house, it was almost as though the house didn't like it. If we didn't get on the job and get it finished, something was let us know about it. That's right, Jimmy Page bought it. And luckily for us, I found a much better and less boring documentary about it. The guitar Jimmy Page. Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page took a more serious interest than most. He studied Crowley closely. He collected Crowley's paintings and books. And in 1971, Jimmy Page bought Boleskine House. So Page was a real fan. He bought Alistair's old gaff and installed his old friend Marcus Dent as housekeeper. And here he gives his own account. I had no idea why he'd bought Boleskine House, the estate. I hadn't ever heard of Alistair Crowley. So arriving at Boleskine and discovering one that it has a history and a past and a pretty weird past at that. Two, that there are certain things still going on there. Three, there are people who will visit the place to, to experience this and even practice it. And four, that one of my oldest friends seemed to be actively involved one way or another in this. Uh, was That was, there was a lot of things to sort of take in. Four things, not two or three, but four things. Marcus wasn't always alone there. A Scottish friend called Doogie would visit from time to time. Having spent quite a few nights there, I felt very uncomfortable when I, I went to bed. The lights were out. I, I would go off to sleep. I always go off to sleep immediately. But I, was all, I always woke up at 2, 3 in the morning with a very, feeling very uncomfortable. That's the same time I usually awake at night. Except for me, it's due to a feeling of unbearable pressure on my bladder. There was a definite feeling of a presence, a very strong presence that was trying to maybe get into you. Yep, that sounds like Crowley. Probably one of the, the first episodes that made the biggest impression on me was sitting in bed or half lying in bed and something outside the door of my bedroom was snuffling under the door which it started off as if it was a dog and then became very much more powerful as a sound and as a, a noise and as an impression to the extent that I shit your pants snapped on a light oh uh, beside the bed and was, well, I have to confess, very, very frightened because it became extremely noisy and as if the door was going to come through. But I had a feeling as to what the creature was and it was huge and very, very evil. 
and I was very, very frightened. I still think he shit his pants. Crowley, when he was raising the various demons and spirits at Boleskine, failed to banish all of them back from whence they came. And that one or two residues had been left behind. And he actually mentions that he had left this one bricked up, in, as he put it, in, a, in the centre of Boleskine House. There is some truth to that. At Boleskine, Alistair attempted a ritual that was to take six months. Those six months included refraining from alcohol and drug intake. He never finished the ritual, and with me having just survived dry January, I can really sympathise with him. The room I was in that night was the centre of Boleskine House. Why didn't we go mad? Why didn't we run out screaming our heads off? We wouldn't allow that to dominate our existence or our lives. Boleskine House was essentially a family house where a family was living, having as good a time as it could as a family and attempting to blossom as a family. You had to acknowledge that somebody would come in from outside and have some incredible freaky time while you were there. And, and you saw it and witnessed it and they were responsible for it because of their heads. House was good at that. House responded to, the, the Boleskine House responds to people. And that was it. Except it wasn't. Page sold the house in 1991 after spending very little time there himself. The house was turned into a hotel, but upon the owner's death, it was sold again to an anonymous Dutch buyer. In 2015, there was a terrible fire. 60% of the house was destroyed. No one was in the house at the time and there were no casualties. It is now in the hands of the Boleskine House Foundation, who are aiming to restore the house and grounds to their former glory. Boleskine wasn't the only thing that people believed Crowley had left an impression on. Remember that the house was very close to another Scottish paranormal anomaly. The lingering influences from Crowley's time were believed to have spread beyond Boleskine into the surrounding area itself. One of the things Ted Holliday observed about the Loch Ness Monster was that, um, and he spent years hunting after it, he seemed to behave in some ways like a supernatural being. That's right. Boleskine House is on the southeast side of Loch Ness. And he believed that the Loch Ness Monster was partly a reflection of the things that Crowley had done there in his days at Boleskine. That some kind of magical influence pervades the area. This is obviously preposterous. The legend of Loch Ness Monster dates back to the 5th century. And also, people actually like Nessie. Colin Wilson suggests that there's more phenomena since Crowley lived beside the lock than before that. Of course, we just don't know, really, how many people claimed to see the monster in the olden days and it was never recorded. Um, but if it is a spiritual phenomenon, then it's possible that Crowley created more, more sightings of the thing, that he got these memories out of the box almost and got them floating around, yeah. I'm not buying that. 
If Alistair thought there was anything in the lock, he probably would have tried to fuck it. Which would lead to less sightings of Nessie, not more. But of course, Crowley's influence is more than just an old house bought by a rock musician who's too scared to spend any time in it. Crowley led a religion that still has followers today. The Order Templis Orientis, or OTO, was founded by a German guy called Karl Kellner. The order was based on Masonic teachings. In fact, only high-level Masons were originally allowed to enter the order. Crowley was admitted in 1910 and given the title Supreme and Holy King of Ireland, Iona and all of the Britons. The philosophy of the OTO is as follows. The order offers esoteric instruction through dramatic ritual guidance in a system of illuminated ethics and fellowship among aspirants to the great work of realising the divine in the human. So, that's nice. Within a year of joining, Crowley had written and devised the rituals or degrees that must be carried out. And, with Alistair being Alistair, lots of those rituals involved masturbating. OTO has lodges in the UK, USA, Australia, and for some reason, Croatia. Membership figures are kind of hard to come by, but as of 2014, the US had 1,508 members, which doesn't really seem that much. They do, however, have a YouTube channel, and their videos average around 8,000 views each. The guy that fronts the channel is... Dionysus Rogers. Yeah, like that's his real name. But he's about to give us an intro into what they're all about. To be honest, I thought they'd do videos in a grand location with mesmerizing backdrops, but they didn't. It's just a guy in front of a plain grey wall. I can't see the chair he's sitting on, but I imagine it to be rather bland and rudimentary piece built for purpose rather than for comfort. But enough of my chair musings. Let's see what he has to say. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I think we already knew that. The Order of Oriental Templars, better known as Ordo Templi Orientis or merely OTO, is the first religious body to base its work on the law of Philema. OTO is essentially a vehicle for organizing and mobilizing under the law. I think I'm right. That chair is definitely uncomfortable. You can hear it in his voice. Since we can't expect any sort of deus ex machina to take us to a new Jerusalem. Isn't that typical of deus ex machinas? I mean, they just can't be relied upon. The old social forms are obsolete and oppressive, and humans need social contexts in which to temper and express our individual wills. That's what I keep trying to tell people. Crowley introduced the law of Thalema to OTO in the early decades of the 20th century. But without his leadership, the order went into a dormant period for the 30 years following his death. Starting in the 1970s, surviving members began to reorganize. And growth has been fairly steady ever since. He sounds rather more optimistic than the actual numbers would suggest. There are now thousands of active members organized in over 40 different countries worldwide. The United States is one of five 
with a Grand Lodge or National Section. OTO includes two outer rites or systems of ceremony for the purpose of realizing the divine in the human. Okay, how do we find these divine humans? The first of these is Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, a church body whose central ritual is a symbolic drama called the Gnostic Mass, intended to cultivate religious ecstasy without moralizing or superstition. I think he's talking about masturbating. Since the Book of the Law affirms that every man and every woman is a star, our church requires priestesses as well as priests. The clergy organize group ceremonies, but we do not serve as intermediaries between the individual and his or her god. The most important form of deity in Philema is the Algoides, personal genius or holy guardian angel, which is understood to be unique for each individual. I wonder who would be my Algoides? A person baptized in the church affirms, I will know my own will. I will do my own will. I will rejoice in the will of my God. So basically it's, I'll do what the fuck I want. The other outer right of OTO is Mysteria Mystica Maxima, a set of graduated initiations using the methods of Freemasonry and the ancient mystery cults. I wonder if they have a funny handshake. Fraternal temple initiation in person may seem somewhat antiquated, and indeed, the heyday of such work in the United States was the late 1800s. But living 21st century lives in smartphones and video displays deprives us of many of the contacts and sensory channels that previously would have integrated us into age-old networks of human consciousness. Kind of ironic that he's saying that on a YouTube channel. The OTO degrees redress these faults while developing self-discipline and self-knowledge towards the goals of individual liberty and universal brotherhood. And yet more irony that a group started by a perverted drug abuser, Alistair Crowley, is trying to teach self-discipline Another important but still largely unrealized dimension of OTO is the establishment of intentional communities centered on profess houses. Crowley briefly operated such a project, the Abbey of Thalema, in Cefalu in the 1920s. That would be the commune Alistair created in Italy. He's conveniently leaving out the bit about the chapel descending into heroin-fueled goat-fucking chaos. And he's leaving out the bit about how the debauchery was so bad Benito Mussolini kicked them out of Italy. And late in life, he was making plans for another, to be called the Green Lion, which never came to fruition. Thank God for that. The creative opportunity to bring such communities into existence is important, however, to the Thelemic movement as a whole, because despite our emphasis on the liberty of the individual, we recognize that many of the most admirable and challenging aspects of human existence can only manifest in cooperation with others. Well, there's no point discarding your cumbersome robes and dancing around a fire on your own. People today intuitively grasp the obsolescence of many aspects of our social system. 
The reduction of men and women to consumers results in profound alienation, compensated only by the most superficial of freedoms. I was thinking exactly the same thing as I was driving my Toyota RAV4 hybrid the other day. The law of Thalema challenges us all to find a deeper sort of liberty that can empower us to remake society in a world that has already shifted under our feet. For my part, I maintain that Thalema is first and foremost the formula of spiritual development most suited to our cultural and historical circumstances. It includes a philosophy based on super-rational experiences. It provides a basis for sacred observance that synthesizes the best elements of so-called world religions. As I see it, Philema is more Christian than Christianity, and more satanic than Satanism. More Christian than Christianity? and more satany than satanism it might even be more buddhary than buddhism but Dionysus has even more to say he gets into the principles of oto what if the apocalypse had already happened how should we live in a post-apocalyptic world where all of the values of the old one had been destroyed i've actually thought about this a lot but it always ends up with me stealing ferraris alistair crowley had an answer he said that we should each live according to our true will. By this, he meant that every man and every woman must discover his or her own true nature and purpose in this world and fulfill it. It's still stealing Ferraris then. And the essential basis of that fulfillment is to be love. And not love in the mere sense of sentimental affection. Yes, because through my research I found that Crowley's idea of love had absolutely nothing to do with affection at all. Crowley's philosophy further claims man has the right to love as he will, when, where, and with whom he will. Bisexual himself, he proclaimed the absolute liberty of consensual sexual expression with the force of prophetic authority. Basically, Alistair would fuck anything with a pulse. In 1904, Crowley received a text. Bullshit. Phones weren't even invented then. As a result of magical invocation. The Book of the Law. Oh. The law this book contained may be summarized by these words. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And love is the law, love under will. They say that a lot. I get the feeling that the book of the law is just do what thou wilt written over and over and over again. Crowley believed that with the arrival of this new law, the old world order was completely overturned, destroyed by fire, as it were, and a new age dawned. Not really. He called his new system Thalema, Greek for will, and he identified himself with the great beast of Revelation. Accordingly, Philema declares Christianity obsolete, along with all other world religions. So he's declared religions obsolete while creating a new religion. 
Thelemites are often practitioners of magic. I bet David Blaine is one. Understood as the form of occultism developed by Crowley, from his training in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and his exposure to esoteric religions around the world. His techniques and theories have influenced generations of practitioners of divination, yoga, alchemy, spirit evocation, and astral travel. Yep, David Blaine is definitely a Thelemite. He was also a practitioner and a pioneer in the modern Western use of entheogens, such as mescaline. And his social ideas support the use of such for not only self-medication, but also self-exploration. So, say yes to drugs? After finding out that OTO is pro-drug abuse and has a positive outlook on onanism, I thought I might find out if I could join this order. I found a few roadblocks, however. A person can only be initiated in person. So with the current COVID restrictions, I can't do that. Then there's a monetary fee to be paid. Their website doesn't say how much, so I'm assuming it's quite a lot. More than I'd be prepared to pay anyway. And lastly, the email link to the London chapter didn't work. But luckily for me, the Chicago chapter put out video of their Gnostic Mass. There's about ten people, only one of them appears to be a goth, and they're on a beach all dressed in white robes. Oh. Let it fill me. The light is mine, its rays consume me. I have made a secret door into the house of Ra and Zoom, of Kephra and of Ahathor. I am thy Theban omen too, the prophet Amkafnakamsu. By Besnamat, my breast I beat. By wise Hanak, I weave my spell. It's actually a lot longer than that. It's also very repetitive. And at no point are the robes discarded. So, that was a complete waste of my time. Crowley's writings are still sold today, including his shitty poetry. But what he will most be remembered for is the Book of the Law. The Book of the Law is a charter of universal freedom. It gives every individual, every man and every woman on this planet rights and we're now grown up enough i believe to actually exercise those rights and to take responsibility for our own actions O lion and O serpent that destroy the destroyer be mighty among us do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law love is the law love under will episode 44 Alistair Crowley revisited the epilogue. So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that the bad luck that surrounds Boleskine House can be attributed to Crowley summoning demons and not putting them back. Crowley, when he was raising the various demons and spirits at Boleskine, failed to banish all of them back from whence they came. We learnt that 
Thelema is the most religious of religions. Thelema is more Christian than Christianity and more satanic than Satanism. And we learnt that the Gnostic Mass isn't the drug-fueled fuckfest we were hoping it would be. I have made a secret door into the house of Ra and Doom. Although the OTO might not have as many members as they might like, Alistair Crowley has made quite a mark on the world. As well as being in the list of British people, he's had songs written about him by good people as well, like Ozzy Osbourne and David Bowie. He was also on the cover of the Beatles album, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But then, so were a lot of people. But Crowley did have a big influence on other important people. Jack Parsons was the founder of what is now NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and he was a follower of Thelema and practitioner of sex magic. One of Jack Parsons' friends was L. Ron Hubbard, who, it is said, was greatly influenced by Crowley. Hubbard did fuck Jack's wife, which I guess is a typical Crowley move, but I think the influence refers to starting religions and shit like that. Whatever his influence, it doesn't change the fact that Alistair died in 1947 penniless and riddled with syphilis in hell, otherwise known as Hastings. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. Special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Yeah.